It is so good to worship with you today. Uh, Lynn mentioned that we were here from we were here from 2007 through 2018, and those years were really incredibly formative for me and for my family. As uh, Becca and I got married in 2008, and your pastors were so instrumental in discipling me and discipling us in teaching me about what it means to be a godly husband, uh, what it means to be a godly father, um, and really providing a foundation for my family that has yielded such fruit uh, over these last 15 years. And so it is, it is a joy to be here. And, and seeing your faces, I, I can't describe to you how good it is to be uh, worshiping with you people in particular this morning. We have so much love for you, so thank you for welcome, welcoming us here uh, to preach the word this morning. Uh, we are going to take a break from Jeremiah. I understand you've been in Jeremiah for a long time. I've listened to some of the messages. They've been very good, uh, but we're going to take a, a one-week break here from Jeremiah, and we are going to be in the book of First John. So if you have a physical paper Bible, then you're weird. Uh, but whether it's a uh, physical Bible or a smartphone, let's turn to 1 John, uh, beginning in chapter 1 and verse 5. 1 John, chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. Truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Please come, send your Holy Spirit to do what only you can do, and that is to apply your word, your true word to our hearts in such a way that it bears fruit, that it makes changes in the way we live, in the way we think, in the way we act, and Lord, send your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would guide this time and that you would be glorified by everything that is said. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1996, the magazine, Outdoor Magazine, they paid to send one of their correspondents, one of their writers, to Mount Everest to write about the commercialization of the climbing of Mount Everest. Oh, sure. Thank you, Jonathan. And maybe some of you have heard this story, but uh, the writer's name was John Krakauer. 
and he had a history in mountaineering, and he had been following what was going on, the situation at Mount Everest, as over time it had transitioned from, from a thing that was, was really reserved for highly skilled mountaineers, and it was becoming almost a, a, a tourist event. Uh, it had become something where, because of the help and aid of the Sherpas, if you had enough money and you had a desire to do something a little risky and go on an adventure, then you could kind of pay your way into the Mount Everest experience. And so John Krakauer and Outdoor Out, Outside Magazine were interested in how is that going? How is it going to have these kind of rich, not so experienced individuals on the tallest mountain in the world? And so he got there and he ended up writing a book and an article but what he reported was that it had, it had become something where people were landing at, at the mountain. They were trekking up to base camp at, at more than 17,000 feet high, and they had zero experience of mountaineering of any kind. So he reports about one lady who was getting ready to go on her first kind of hike to, to acclimate to, to that altitude, and he said that she took her hiking boots, her mountaineering boots, out of her bag, and they were still in the box. She had never put them on. She had, who knows if she had ever been on a mountain before in her life. And so what unfolded was actually really extremely tragic that year, as up to that point, 1996 became the deadliest year in the history of Mount Everest. Uh, as they were preparing to summit, and if you know anything about climbing large mountains, the summit day is really, really highly planned and organized. You've got to get up before in, in the middle of the night and then climb and climb and climb so that you can hit the summit at the right time of day so that you can make it back to high camp before dark and before any bad weather comes in. But in this circumstance in 1996, uh, several people were able to summit and a storm came in at the top of Mount Everest that prevented many from ever making it back. You see, mountains are something that do not care what you think about them. It doesn't matter if you feel like you can climb the mountain. It doesn't matter. You don't bring your own thoughts to Mount Everest. You reckon with what you find there. And you're either prepared to, to respond to what you find there, such as the, the physical difficulty of climbing a mountain that's that tall. Uh, such as the lack of oxygen when you get to that altitude, the skills that are required to, to climb and hike in the ice and snow and sub-zero temperatures. So you have to approach, if you want to be a mountain climber, you approach the mountains with a sense of humility. You don't tell the mountain what to do. You either adjust yourself to the mountain or else you're going to be broken to pieces in the experience. And often the result can be very severe. Our passage in 1 John today, I think, is similar. John is going to start off by telling us something about God, something about his very nature. And then he's going to teach us how we relate to this incontrovertible truth about God so that we don't break ourselves to pieces against the mountain of God. Because all too often, we approach God the way these inexperienced climbers were approaching Mount Everest. We come to God with our thoughts and feelings and, and misconceptions, and we think that God is going to mold to fit our view, and that is not the case. 
And John is full of compassion this morning as he wants to help us avoid these errors and tell us something that is true about God regardless of what we feel. Let's look at how he starts in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Now let's stop right there. This is a passage about sanctification. This is a passage about sin and repentance. This is a passage about personal holiness. But note that John doesn't start by saying, this is the message we heard from him and we report to you. Stop sinning. That's not how he starts. He doesn't say, this is the message we heard from him. Please just be holy. Why are you all acting this way? That's not the place John starts because for John, the doctrine of sin is founded in the character of God. We have to start with God when we start with the doctrine of sin to understand it appropriately. God's laws are not arbitrary, and and we're liable to think that. If we don't start with this truth about God, that he is light, and in him there is no darkness at all, then we are liable to think that God just sat down one Saturday afternoon and said, hey, you know, what if I made a list of 10 rules? You know, that just, I, I feel good about this. No, 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 no. John wants to help you understand that laws aren't arbitrary. He didn't make these up. These flow, the the moral law of Scripture, what the Bible describes as as good and evil, flow from the very character, the, the essence of God's being. John says he is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. We can't rush past this because Satan would love for you to think that God's law does not flow from his heart. Note that in the Garden of Eden, Satan attacked God's character. He said, this is not what is best for you. Eve, God is lying to you. He knows that if you eat of the fruit, that you will have special knowledge. No, Satan was attacking this very truth, and that's where John starts. No, no, God is light. In his character, there is nothing dark, evil, sinister, There is nothing in God other than purity, light, love, holiness. And his law flows from that. Now, for us to understand the argument that John's going to make, we have to understand how John uses the metaphor of light. And it's really consistent with how all of Scripture talks about light. The first aspect of this metaphor that has a couple of layers has to do with the most obvious truth about light, that it illuminates It helps us to see when you walk into a dark room and you flip the light switch, you see what's there. It may not be pretty, but you see exactly what's there. And scripture talks about light, about God's word and God's character like this from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. See Proverbs 6, 23, for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. Or Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. First Peter 1 Peter 1.19, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. So the first obvious aspect about light is it enables you to see And this isn't only about the function of seeing as opposed to blindness, although that is obviously part of it. It's about seeing which way to go. It's about seeing in such a way that it enables you to act in a method that's consistent with the truth. So seeing is not just divorced from living. 
If you can't see, it impacts how you walk. It impacts how you live. But when you can see, you walk differently. There are things that you avoid. John wants us to understand that about God. And when God comes into your life, when God comes into my life, he is light. And he is going to reveal exactly what is there. Secondly, light is a metaphor for purity, holiness, righteousness, that this is God. God is completely and entirely pure and holy. Uh, Look at Isaiah 5.20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So you see there that we are often confused. Not only are we blind, we think we can see. We're we're liable to call what is good evil and to call what is evil good. But God is not like this. God has perfect clarity flowing from his very being and character. He is light. He's not deceived. He's not deluded. He's not wondering which way to go. He doesn't struggle with any of those things. He's not uncertain. He is completely holy and pure. He is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And the final thing I want us to understand about light in John's writings in particular is the connection between light and life. You see, we've talked about this idea of illuminating what's there. Light shows us what is there. And we've talked about purity and holiness. But what do these things add up to? When you see with clarity and when you're perfectly pure and holy, What does that add up to? What is the end of these things? And in the writings of John, the end is abundant life. And I think this is so easy to miss when we're thinking about sanctification, when we're striving to grow in holiness. It's so easy to miss that this is adding up to something good. This is adding up to the good life, the true good life, not the Americanized version of the good life, It's not about white picket fences and fluffy dogs and two two and a half kids or whatever it might be. There is is life in God. There is life in Christ that is different from merely biological life. We can go about living in our bodies and not experience abundant life. And Jesus came with a purpose to communicate and make a way for us to experience something qualitatively different than someone who does not know the Lord. Look at John 1, 4 and 5. And I find it interesting that John started the letter of 1 John and the Gospel of John. Both, both writings start with this appeal to God as light. Uh, John 1, 4 and 5. In him, that is Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. You see that there. The life was the light of men. So for John, when he says God is light and in him there is no darkness, he means this is the key. God is living the abundant life. If we ignore him, if, if we pretend like we know the way up the mountain on our own, if I make up a way to go, it's not going to go well. In him is life, and that life is the light of men. In John 10.10, Jesus said this, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Now, you might be thinking, that's all well and good. So God is perfect. 
God has abundant life. I am not. There seems to be an enormous chasm here. How is this going to help me, Tim? Does John have anything to tell, tell us about us? Well, we're, we're in luck. John does have something to say. He's going to give us three lies. Uh, John may have been responding to particular heresies in the church at the time. He may have been responding to the Gnostics. It's hard to tell. But unfortunately for us, these lies did not die with the Gnostics. They're still alive and well in our society. They're still alive and well in our hearts all too often. Uh, So let's look at the first lie that John wants to call our attention to, and it's in verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So specifically, what is the lie? What is John calling our attention to? The specific lie here is that my conduct, my lifestyle has no impact on my relationship with God. This is this is common. This is heartbreakingly common. Uh, outside the church, I, I might call this the, the spiritual person, uh, that this person completely disregards how God has revealed himself in his word, what his word has to say about how to live, how to act, how to think, uh, what actions are evil, what actions are good. That, that has no place in their life. And yet, their testimony about themselves is, is I, I'm connected to God. I'm a spiritual person. I, I, we see this in society around us. Inside the church, it takes a, a little bit of a different tone. I know you guys thought you were going to be able to sit here comfortably and we were going to talk about the lies that people who aren't sitting in this space believe, but that unfortunately is not our job for today. Inside the church, what does this look like? Well, I think two primary ways, two primary examples that I'll give for you today. And one is the person who is aware of sin in their lives. There's a pocket of darkness in his or her life. They're aware of it. They understand that it's not consistent with God's word and God's teachings. And yet they're hiding. They're hiding it. They may be ashamed. They may be fearful, but they're, they're hiding If you find yourself in that position today, I want you to know that John's heart for you, my heart for you, God's heart for you is full of compassion. Everything that God did in the work of Christ was for you. There's another kind of person, though, that I have in mind, and this is further down the road of that hiding. This is the the hypocrite. This person is a wolf in sheep's clothing. They are going through the motions on the outside that look like they have a thriving relationship with God. Oftentimes they are in the church. Heartbreakingly, often, this this can impact anyone in the church, every level, pastors all the way down. Often this takes the form of even teaching, oh no, you know, what God's word has to say about sexuality doesn't apply. You can have a great relationship with God. You can have fellowship with God, take or leave the Bible's teachings on sexuality. Oh, you, can, you know what? You can have a great relationship with God, but you, the, the, the passages in the Bible that talk about not forsaking, meeting together, uh, that's take it or leave it. You know what? The, the church, the golf course is my church. The wilderness is my church. That's where I go. You know, so this is, this is hypocrisy. Uh, and, and unfortunately, it, 
is still around, alive, and well in churches today. You see, God is light. This is, do you see the argument John is making? The very simple but profound argument. God is light, okay? If you were practicing the truth, if God's light were in your soul right now, you would not have the ability to say that my fellowship with God's not impacted by these deeds of darkness. The true light exposes those things. The, the true light brings humility and conviction when those things are present. So if you're walking in this lie, then then you're not practicing the truth. You don't know the God who is light. Let's look at the second lie in verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So the first person is aware that there's, there are things in their lives that are, that are not consistent with God's word, but they're lying about their relationship with God. This second person has a different problem. When we, this person says that they have no sin in their life. And note what John says about this individual. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. This person is deceived. Now, when I think about the, the person who's deceived and that the, the fruit of this deception is that you're either in denial about or unaware of sin in your life, this is the person that I have in mind. Outside the church, this is the, this is the good person. I, I'm a good person. I, I'm not aware of sin in my life. I may have no clue of the claims of God on my life, that I'm created by an almighty God, that, that, that this God has moral instruction for me about how to live and how not to live. I may just not know. I'm bopping along through my life. I think I'm doing pretty good. I think I'm a nice guy. You know, this is ignorance. I'm deceived. And the Bible talks about these people. Uh, the wisdom literature talks all the time about the simple-minded and the foolish. And what is the response of the church? What should be the response welling up in our hearts for people who fall into this category? And I, I believe it's compassion. You know, what is needed in this situation is teaching. God's word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. What is needed is teaching under the, the, the complete trust that when we teach God's word, the Holy Spirit illuminates people's hearts. That's what's needed. That is outside the church. Inside the church, this looks a lot uglier than just the nice person. Inside the church, this is, this is self-righteousness. This is the person who knows God's teaching and really believes that he's doing pretty good with it. He, he knows God's teaching. He's like, yeah, you know, I, I just wish everybody else could be as righteous as me. I just don't know why you guys are struggling. I'm able to live this way. I want to caution us, uh, church, against falling into, getting stuck in a place in our hearts where we intellectually assent to the, the truth that, that sin, that we're not perfect, the truth of the doctrine of sin, but that it has no personal impact anymore, Okay. How, look, look exactly what, what John says. These people who are deceiving themselves into believing that there's no sin in their lives, what does he say about them? The truth is not in us. Now, that's an interesting phrase. The truth is not in us. He could have said, oh, they don't understand the truth. But he didn't make a claim about their understanding. The truth is not in them. And when we know, church, that when, the, when, the gospel, when John talks about the truth being in us, he's talking about the truth, capital T, the Holy Spirit is not in us. You see, when we have an intellectual assent to the gospel, an intellectual assent 
to the doctrine of sin, but we have no personal response to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we can do so much damage to ourselves and others. That's like, I, I believe I'm a good climber. I'm setting out for Mount, Mount Everest, but I just, I just have not, I, I mentally know that the air is going to be pretty thin up there, but I think I've got it. I'm good. I'm not going to take oxygen tanks, okay? So this person, this person is not prepared. This person is going to dash themselves to pieces and injure everyone around him or her with their self-righteousness. They are deceived. Pride deceives us into thinking that we're good when we're not. And finally, the last lie, uh, 1 John verse, chapter 1, verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, at, at first glance, this seems to repeat verse 8. You know, verse 8 says, if we say we have not sinned, or we say we have no sin, and verse 10 says, if we say we have not sinned. But look how John goes on to describe this person. This person, this person is not, this isn't the same situation. In verse 8, that we're deceived, and the truth is not in us. But in verse 10, we're calling God a liar. In many ways, these lies have progressed. In, they've gotten worse and worse as we've gone, okay? The, the, the first person, the, the one who's lying about their relationship with God, they at least have an awareness, right? When you're lying, you, you have an awareness of the truth. This last person, they are aware of God's teaching, and they are saying, God, you are wrong. You are wrong about what is good and evil. You are wrong about what the good life is. And I think that's, I think our society is at a point of such tension, full of people who do have an awareness of what God's word teaches about certain categories and are angrily accusing God of lying. And they think that their quarrel is with members of the church, and it is not. If their quarrel was with members of the church, they wouldn't have such a big problem because we ain't nothing special. But their quarrel is with the Lord Almighty. They are in grave danger. And, but for God's grace, any one of us could find ourselves in that spot. So we see that true Christians neither walk in a habitual lifestyle of sin while claiming that our relationship with God is unaffected, but we also don't claim that there's no sin in our lives. Both of those errors are contradicting the truth about God that he is light because he reveals the truth about our attitude and actions. He reveals when there's sin in our lives. But what is the answer then? You see, we've gone through these ways and it strikes me that these are just typical ways that humans cope. This is how we cope with the problem of sin. When we find evil outside of us, we get angry and we feel justified at that. When we find evil inside of us, we, what we do is we twist things. We downplay it. We lie. We deceive ourselves. Uh, we, we call God a liar. This is how we try to cope with the problem of evil inside our own hearts. But praise the Lord that God has provided a better way. I am going to string together John gives a lie and then he gives a truth statement and then he gives a lie and he gives a truth statement and he does that three times and I'm going to string the first two together in verse 7 and verse 9 and let's read it together. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another 
and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now note, first and foremost, who is doing the cleansing? This is so crucial. We can't miss this in our hearts. We, we often know this in our heads. But you, my friends, my brothers, my sisters, are not doing the cleansing. Is that a relief to you this morning? That you, that, that you don't have to do the cleansing? John tells us the blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. And he goes on to say, he, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, Jesus Christ came and he was light. And in him was no darkness at all. And he lived the life that we could not live, perfectly holy, perfectly just. And he died the death that we should have died. And he was raised again on the third day declaring victory over sin and death. And this, this is the only doorway into the abundant life, my friends. This is the only way. All the coping mechanisms we have, all the coping mechanisms the world engages in, it, 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 we're dashing ourselves to pieces on the mountain of God. But you come to God, you come to the mountain through the sun, through the blood of the perfect son who died in your place for your sins. And there is a pathway to be justified and sanctified. And John is going to take us deeper than I think very few other places in the Bible are going to pull back the curtain the way John does on the sanctification process. And I am excited to get there in this passage with you this morning. Jesus is cleansing us by his blood. When we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we can walk in the light. What does walking in the light mean? Well, it means a commitment to and a, a recognition of the things that we talked about the metaphor of light representing. So God is perfectly holy. That's one thing light represents. And when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are, you, your mindset about what is beautiful and what is ugly, about what is good and what is evil, about what is dark and what is light. The Holy Spirit changes your perspective. He turns on the light and you can see your soul clearly for the first time. And it's appalling. It's not a pretty picture. And so right, right from day one and progressively after conversion, the light is being turned on in a gentle way, in a compassionate way so that you can see your soul. And you have been given a new, fresh love for the light, for holiness, for the things that God wor God's word reveals to us. So we are dedicated, Christians are dedicated to walking in the light, meaning we are dedicated to living the way God's word instructs us to live. Secondly, it means that we are not, we are not deluding ourselves about the ongoing presence of sin in our lives. We don't lie about sin in our lives. We don't, we're not self-righteous because the light is on. The Holy Spirit's in there and we're aware. We're aware of what's in there. So th this is part of what it produces for us to walk in the light. Now, when we do this, when we come to God through Christ and the Holy Spirit comes to live in us and the light is turned on, what fruit does this, aside from dedication to and pursuit of holiness and honesty about sin, what else happens? 
in the life of the Christian? Well, John tells us, first and foremost, confession happens. Okay, this isn't something that we only do when we come to Christ. Confession is a lifestyle for the believer. Okay, when we are responding not merely intellectually to the doctrine of sin, but responding personally to the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, the Holy Spirit leads us to confession. This is how we bring dark places back out into the light. This is how progressive sanctification and growth and holiness works. The thing God gives us to do in that situation where we've become aware of sin is to confess. It does not say, note, verse 9, if we confess our sins, it does not say, if you try really hard, he's faithful and just to forgive you. Okay? If, if you have, if you set your alarm at 5.30 every morning and spend 27 hours a day in God's word, and you go to church every Sunday, and you fill in the blank all the way down. No, no, no. All those things may be very, very good. The thing God gives us to do when we're aware of darkness in our hearts is confess, is bring it out into the light. And I've heard Lynn say for years, the first one to the cross wins. The quicker you do it, the better. It's leading us to abundant life. Second, do you know, do you know the promise here inherent in these verses? If we confess, he does these things. He will do these things. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And don't miss the and. Oh, it's beautiful that he's faithful to forgive us of those sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you ever been in a season in your life where you have become discouraged? You do not trust that this sin issue is ever going to change, that you're ever going to grow through this thing. Holiness in this area feels completely outside of possibility for you. If you have ever been there, John is coming to your aid right now with a promise. If you confess your sins, he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I think that in our churches today, we all too often stop believing in the sanctification process. We do not know how to connect sanctification to justification. We do not understand how the gospel continues to work moment by moment, day after day, producing over and over and over again confession, repentance, freedom, forgiveness, increasing love for light and holiness, increasing conquering and defeat of sin in our lives. This is, this is a promise in the word of God. And there may be some of you here today who need to hear again afresh that that element in your life that you're holding, it can be healed. It can be healed. God is powerful. That is the gospel. Oh, it also produces fellowship and joy. And I'm not sure you saw that. As he himself, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Have you ever been in a community group meeting where someone honestly confesses sin? Have you, and you know what it does to the air in the room, to the temperature, to the, the whole feel of the room. You may have just been going through a community group meeting, going through the motions, and people are talking and yada, yada, yada. But then someone says something out of genuine humility. They, they share something that's going on in their life. They, they, they confess something. They repent of something. They ask for help. And, and the whole meeting changes. Fellowship happens. You see... Friends, Satan wants you and me to think that we can only have meaningful friendships if we hide our bad stuff away. Stuff it away, put your best, best foot forward, 
put on a happy face, act like you've got it all together. This is a huge victory for Satan. God is telling us real fellowship, real community, real friendship is 100% dependent on honesty about what's really going on in our lives. I'm inviting you, I'm inviting myself into believing that again, day in and day out, that we, when we are aware, when the Holy Spirit does his illuminating work of showing us things in our hearts, the next step after prayer is who you're going to call. When's the next small group meeting when you can honestly talk about this? When is the appropriate, the appropriate setting when you can say, hey, guys, this is going on in my life. Will you pray for me? This is the way. This is how God works. Now, that's the gospel on display in our lives, the gospel at work in the life of the believer every day, day in and day out. But let's look together at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. I want you to stop and note John's tone here. He, he's writing a letter to people who, in, in some cases, are severely twisting the gospel and the doctrine of sin, misunderstanding it, leading people astray. But listen to John's tone. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone sins, you see, there's such gentleness there's such compassion. And I think the juxtaposition here, I'm writing these things to you so that you will not sin. It's absolutely clear in our passage today that John's goal is personal holiness. He, he doesn't want us to be lenient about sin in our lives. Okay, absolutely clear. But at the same time, the next sentence, and if anyone sins, right? It is possible to be both too lenient in our attitude towards sin and too severe in our attitude towards sin. If we're too lenient, then we're not growing in holiness. We're not responding to the real work of the Holy Spirit. We're not consistent with the truth that God is light and, and light has no fellowship with darkness. But if we're too severe, we're denying the other truth that John is bringing forward to us. We're denying that there is ongoing sin in our life. When I respond severely to someone else's sin, it, it, it's a denial that there's sin in my life. If I'm not gentle, what does that say about my current heart situation? It, it suggests self-righteousness. It's ugliness. So we can be both too lenient and too severe in our attitude towards sin in ourselves and in others. John calls Jesus our advocate. If anyone sins, we have an advocate. This is a word, a Greek word, translated advocate, and the Greek word is, is unique. It's pe peculiar to John's writings. Uh, the only other place that it's used in all of the Bible is in the upper room discourse in John chapters 14 through 16, and there Jesus uses it as a title for the Holy Spirit, and it's translated there as helper. <laughs> but don't miss this. The the parallel, the comparison between how Jesus uses the word advocate, helper, and how John is use, now using the word advocate and helper opens up a whole world, a whole world of amazing truth for us this morning. You see, the Holy Spirit, if you switch helper and advocate, the Holy Spirit is Jesus' advocate on earth to us. 
The Holy Spirit is in our heart. And what is he doing? What is the Holy Spirit doing in our heart? He is advocating for Christ. He's applying Christ's work. He's leading us into deeper and deeper intimacy with Christ. But have you, what does that mean about what Jesus is doing in heaven? If the Holy Spirit is Christ's advocate on earth, then in what sense is Jesus advocating? Jesus is our advocate in heaven. And is he doing anything different than what the Holy Spirit is doing? Let's read further. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. What is the content of Jesus' advocacy? I think John tells us because he says Jesus Christ is the righteous one and he says he is the propitiation. Now I'm going to have to push my glasses up a little bit if we're going to tackle the word propitiation. So everybody get ready. But propitiation means to satisfy anger. It means to appease. And perhaps that makes us uncomfortable. Uh, I know that it does make some people uncomfortable, but I hope that we can understand this morning that it is, it is a blessed truth. Oh. It is a blessed truth that God is angry at evil. Okay, think, think with me now. I read just, just last week that China has set up nearly 400 internment camps where they're funneling uh, a minority people group to re-educate them. This people group, their birth rate has dropped by 25% over the last 12 months, okay? Uh, the, interna the International Justice Mission says that there are more men, women, and children in slavery right now than there ever have been in the entire history of the world, at any other time in the history of the world. It, friends, is there any other appropriate response to these kinds of things than anger? Are you not angry that these things are happening? We do not have to look far to see the brokenness, sinfulness of the world, the wickedness that is happening in the world around us. And the only right response is anger at evil. The Bible says that when, when, when God allows rulers, when God wants to judge a nation for wandering away from him, you know what he does? He allows rulers to come into power who are not angry at evil who do not know the difference between good and evil. We, we are so fortunate to have a father, a God, a king, who is absolutely dedicated to his very core to eradicating evil. We would not want it to be any other way. But please don't misunderstand God's heart, the heart of the father. Look at John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. Okay, so what is the motivating principle of sending Jesus? What was the motivating factor? It was God the Father's love. God the Father's love made the way. In Christ's death, God is separating sin from the sinner so that God's justice and rightful anger against evil can be fully satisfied while God's heart of love and compassion for his people is fully displayed and vindicated. And so now we're ready. We're ready to answer the question of what does it mean that Christ is our advocate in heaven? We know that the Holy Spirit the God, is applying the gospel, Christ's work to our hearts here on earth. But what is Christ doing in heaven? I want you to imagine with me the throne room of heaven. What is happening there? Well, we know from Revelation 
chapter 12 and verse 10 that Satan is there. And what is he doing? He's accusing. He's accusing us. Revelation 12.10 says he is accusing us day and night. I hope that that is sobering for you as it is for me. Satan is accusing us, but Jesus is there. Jesus steps up as our advocate. He does not, how does he advocate for you and for me? Does he say, you know, Father, Tim's really a good guy. You know, I think he's going to get this together. His heart's not that bad. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. That's rubbish. Jesus does not deny your sin. He does not deny my sin in his advocacy, advocacy. He points to his own wounds. He recounts the plan made by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in eternity past, before time began, the plan which has now been accomplished, the plan which included Jesus Christ coming to this earth and dying in our place for our sins. So, so what God the Father is there, Satan is accusing, Jesus is recounting what? The gospel. If the Holy Spirit is recounting the gospel to us on earth, is this mind-blowing for you? That the gospel, that the gospel is being rehearsed in heaven day after day after day. And when, particularly when, does Jesus' advocacy work start? When you sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate. I believe the picture we're to have in heaven is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all in unison, exulting, exulting in the victory that they have won day after day after day. Satan, Satan is having his face rubbed in the dirt of the truth of the victory of God's plan every time you sin. Every time I sin and repent, Jesus stands up and says, no, Lord, my wounds, your plan. Satan's words have no power here. Like all true accounts of the gospel, this is both incredibly humbling and, and I hope incredibly comforting. It's, it's extremely humbling for me to think that when I make a decision, a sinful decision, that it sets off a chain of events in heaven where Satan is accusing me for it and Jesus is defending me for it. It leaves no room for pride. No room for pride. But it leaves all the room for freedom, all the room for forgiveness, all the room for life. The application today is explicit in the text. We ought to practice confession. We ought to pursue holiness. I'm going to close the message today by reading a passage from a book that's just been uh, an incredible blessing to me over the last couple of weeks. It's written by Dane Ortland. I know some of you in the church are familiar with it. It's, it's been really lovely. Uh, it's the, the title of the book is Gentle and Lowly, and I'll end with this. Consider your own life. How do you think about Jesus' attitude toward that dark pocket of your life that only you know? The overdependence on alcohol, the lost temper time and again, the shady business about your finances, the inveterate people-pleasing that looks to others like niceness, but which you know to be fear of man, the entrenched resentment that bursts out in behind-the-back accusations, the habitual use of pornography. Who is Jesus in those moments of spiritual blankness? Not 
Who is he once you conquer that sin? But who is he in the midst of it? The Apostle John says, he stands up and defies all accusers. Jesus is our paraclete, our comforting defender, the one nearer than we know, and his heart is such that he stands and speaks in our defense when we sin, not after we get over it. Do not minimize your sin or excuse it away. Raise no defense. Simply take it to the one who is already at the right hand of the Father, advocating for you on the basis of his own wounds. Let your own unrighteousness and all your darkness and despair drive you to Jesus Christ the righteous and all his brightness and sufficiency.